You are listening to Girl Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 42 of Girl Speak, our look at the incredible queens of England. I'm Tiffany Rhodes, program developer with Girl Museum. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history, and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programs are volunteer-run and supported by listeners like you. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. This month, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II has become the longest reigning female monarch in history. To celebrate, we've decided to take a look back at some of England's incredible queens. These are women who shaped history, whether through their direct actions or simply contributing to the vibrant history and culture of modern-day Britain. We start with Boudicca, an infamous Celtic queen. She was the wife of King Prasutagus of the Iceni tribe in eastern England during the first century CE. When the Romans conquered southern England, the Iceni continued to rule their lands. But life under Rome wasn't pleasant for the Iceni. As Roman historian Tacitus described, the Britons complained about providing tribute and rebutted against any behaviors they considered abusive. Other records tell us that Romans settling in the area expelled the natives and appropriated their homes and lands. Shortly before 60 CE, Boudicca's husband died. His will demanded that his kingdom be split between his daughters and the Roman emperor, but Rome was having none of it. Roman law only recognized sons as heirs, plus Rome was eager to obtain the Iceni lands for themselves. As Tacitus recorded in his Annals, Kingdom and household alike were plundered like prizes of war, the one by Roman officers, the other by Roman slaves. As a beginning, his widow Boudicca was flogged and their daughters raped. The Icinian chiefs were deprived of their hereditary estates, as if the Romans had been given the whole country. The king's own relatives were treated like slaves. How horrible! Boudicca had to witness her home, her lands, and even her daughters plundered by the Romans. Naturally, she became outright enraged. She called on hers and other tribes to unite against Rome. With over a hundred thousand troops at her command, Boudicca launched an all-out war. She toppled the city of Calamodunum, the Roman capital of Britain, and rode to Londinium, what is now modern-day London. As Cassius Dio described in Roman history, a terrible disaster occurred in Britain. Two cities were sacked, 80,000 of the Roman and of their allies perished, and the island was lost to Rome. Moreover, all this ruin was brought upon the Romans by a woman, a fact which in itself caused them the greatest shame. But the person who was chiefly instrumental in rousing the natives and persuading them to fight the Romans, the person who was thought worthy to be their leader, and who directed the conduct of the entire war, was Boudicca a Briton woman of the royal family, and possessed of greater intelligence than often belongs to women. In stature, she was very tall, in appearance most terrifying, and the glance of her eye most fierce, 
and her voice was harsh. A great mass of the tawniest hair fell to her hips. Around her neck was a large golden necklace, and she wore a tunic of diverse colors, over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch. This was her invariable attire. In response to Boudicca's campaign, the governor of Britain, called Paulinus, rushed to Londinium to protect it. Unfortunately, by the time he arrived, he realized that he didn't have enough troops to protect the city. The Romans abandoned Londinium, leaving those who could not retreat to be slaughtered. The nearby area that is now St. Albans suffered the same fate. Tacitus described the arrival of Boudicca and the Britons, stating, The natives enjoyed plundering, and thought of nothing else. Bypassing forts and garrisons, they made for where loot was richest and protection weakest. Roman and provincial deaths at the places mentioned are estimated at 70,000. In the meantime, Paulinus was mustering his troops. He confronted Boudicca on an unknown battlefield, somewhere between Mona and Londinium. Accounts detail that Boudicca rode in on her chariot with her daughters, driving in amongst her tribes to rally them. Unfortunately, the battle became a massacre of the Britons, and Boudicca lost. No one knows what happened to this incredible queen. All accounts that we have of her are by Roman historians, so we have to recognize that there is an inherent bias against her, and a tendency to ignore her once she was defeated. She was, after all, a woman. There is no surviving record of her capture. It is thought that she died by illness, but some, including Tacitus, say that Boudicca poisoned herself rather than become captured by the Romans. Our next queen, Matilda of Scotland, lived a thousand years later. She was the first daughter of Malcolm III of Scotland and his wife, St. Margaret, born around 1080 CE in Dunfermline. Legend has it that during her christening, Matilda grabbed the English queen's veil and tried to pull it towards her own head. Many took this as an omen that the infant girl would one day be queen. When she was six, Matilda was sent to live at the Abbey of Romsey, where she was educated by her aunt. Accounts state that her aunt was cruel, often beating her and forcing her to wear a black veil, an act that would haunt Matilda later in her life. As Matilda herself recounted, That hood I did indeed wear in her presence, chafing and fearful. But as soon as I was able to escape out of her sight, I tore it off and threw it in the dirt and trampled on it. This was my only way of venting my rage and the hatred of it that boiled up in me. Matilda endured this cruelty for six years before she moved to Wilton Abbey. Her education went beyond that of many girls during her time. She learned English, French, Latin, and was fully literate, following in the footsteps of her book-loving mother. In 1093, at the age of 13, Matilda became betrothed to Alan Rufus, Lord of Richmond. Around this same time, her father entered a dispute that led to Matilda ultimately losing both her parents and becoming an orphan. She was then abandoned by her betrothed, who ran off with another woman. For the next seven years, Matilda's life is a mystery to us. We know that she left the Abbey, but after that, she simply disappears. In 1100, Matilda reappears in the historical record. In that year, Henry I became King of England, and chose Matilda as his bride. We know that Henry and Matilda had met before, and it is likely that they had great affection for one another by this time. 
Yet Matilda's past was not done with her. That black veil? Now it came to haunt her. Accounts of her wearing the black veil led many to believe that Matilda had taken her vows as a nun, and was thus ineligible for marriage. After much debate, a council of bishops decided that Matilda could marry Henry, because there was no other evidence that she had ever been a nun. The chronicler William of Malmesbury details that the match was one of love, but was also political. Matilda's ancestry provided Henry with the ties to the ancient Wessex royal lines that ultimately increased his popularity with the English and secured his place and his line as royalty. Henry and Matilda were married on November 11, 1100 at Westminster Abbey, and Matilda was crowned Queen of England. Matilda was an exemplary queen for her time. She accompanied her husband on his travels throughout the kingdom, and is said to have acted as regent when he was away on foreign business. She was also a key player in the English investiture controversy, acting as intercessor between her husband and Archbishop Anselm, proving that a literate woman could wield enormous influence. Matilda was also a great patron in England. She began work on many buildings, including Waltham Abbey and Holy Trinity Algate. She built the first arched bridge in England, as well as a bathhouse with piped-in water and public bathrooms. Her court was said to be filled with musicians and poets, and she even commissioned a biography of her mother, who by then had been canonized as a saint. Matilda was beloved by her people, known for her devotion to her faith and to the poor. She even established hospitals for lepers. Matilda died in 1118. With Henry, she bore four children, although only one would survive to adulthood, her daughter, Matilda of England, who became Holy Roman Empress, Countess Consort of Anjou, and is known as the Lady of the English. But that's for another podcast. Our next incredible queen is one of my personal favorites, and a woman so notorious that history has never forgotten her. She was born only a few years later, in 1122, as the eldest daughter of William, the 10th Duke of Aquitaine. Her name was Eleanor, and she would go down in history as a double queen and one of the most powerful women in medieval Europe. Eleanor of Aquitaine, as she would come to be known, grew up in her father's glittering 12th century court in the largest and richest province in France. She enjoyed the luxuries of a privileged childhood, learning arithmetic, astronomy, and history, in addition to domestic skills, conversation, dancing, games, playing the harp, and singing. She could also speak Latin, ride a horse, and go hawking and hunting with the best of them. At the age of eight, Eleanor's mother and brother died, leaving her as the heir to her father's domains. She would spend the next seven years at Aquitaine before being taken to Bordeaux to be placed under the care of the archbishop while her father went on a pilgrimage. Her father would never return, having died during the journey and leaving Eleanor an orphan at the age of fifteen. But she was a rich orphan, because now she was Duchess of Aquitaine and the most eligible heiress in Europe. To understand Eleanor's mindset, we need to consider one key fact about medieval life for women. Kidnapping was permissible. In fact, it was a very viable option when a man wanted to obtain a woman as his bride and thus get her title and wealth. 
Eleanor, only fifteen, now faced not only running the richest and largest province in France, but also an onslaught of suitors, some of whom would love nothing more than to kidnap the young woman and claim Aquitaine. Luckily, Eleanor's father had made very strict provisions should he die on pilgrimage. Eleanor was left under the guardianship of King Louis the Sixth of France. Though gravely ill at the time, the king was clear-minded enough to see his opportunity to fulfill his obligation to protect Eleanor, as well as to gain the lands of Aquitaine. King Louis ordered that Eleanor marry his seventeen-year-old son, Prince Louis. It brought Aquitaine under the control of the French crown, increasing France's power and prominence. Luckily, there were provisions that protected Eleanor. Aquitaine would only pass into the control of the French crown after it passed to Eleanor's future sons. Eleanor married Prince Louis on July 25, 1137, in the Cathedral of St. Andrew, and the couple became the new Duke and Duchess of Aquitaine. As a wedding present, Eleanor gave Louis a rock crystal vase, which is currently on display at the Louvre. It is the only object connected to Eleanor that still survives. Eleanor didn't have much time to enjoy her new role as bride before being thrust onto the international stage. Within days of her marriage, she learned that the King of France had died, and on Christmas Day, 1137, Eleanor was anointed and crowned Queen of the Franks. She faced a hard life as queen. She was unpopular with the northerners of France, who weren't used to the glittering standards set at Aquitaine and she was despised by her new mother-in-law, who criticized her as indecorous. Despite this, Louis was madly in love with her, and granted her every whim, including spending lavishly to make the palace a comfortable home for her. In 1141, her husband came into violent conflict with the Pope, which resulted in outright war. The town of Vitry was burned, and Louis's troops murdered over a thousand people. Once the conflict had ended, Louis sought to atone for his sins, so he did what any medieval ruler would do. He went on crusade. Eleanor took up the cross with him, recruiting three hundred of her own vassals for the campaign. She insisted on taking part in the crusades as the leader of her soldiers, resulting in a legend that Eleanor and her ladies dressed as Amazons to lead the troops. Yet the crusade achieved little. Eleanor repeatedly witnessed the massacres of French and German troops in the Holy Land. At one point, Eleanor went ahead with her soldiers across the mountains. Louis, who followed behind with his troops, became separated from her, mostly due to some disobedience by Eleanor's generals, but rumors quickly spread that it was because of how much baggage Eleanor had brought with them on campaign. Louis's soldiers were ambushed and massacred by the Turks, and Louis himself only narrowly escaped because he was dressed as a pilgrim and not recognized. During all this, Eleanor became estranged from Louis and began to talk of an annulment. Louis would have none of it, and forced Eleanor to continue accompanying him on crusade. However, she didn't come out at a total loss. Her experiences in the Holy Land introduced her to maritime conventions that she would implement in Aquitaine and it also helped her to begin trade agreements with Constantinople. Eleanor and Louis eventually traveled to Italy on their way home, 
where Eleanor met with the Pope to discuss the annulment of her marriage. The Pope would hear none of it. In fact, he went so far as to force Eleanor to sleep with Louis in a specially prepared bed, resulting in her pregnancy with her second daughter. The couple never had sons. After the daughter's birth, Eleanor finally got her annulment in 1152, on the grounds that Louis and Eleanor were too closely related to be married. In fact, they were third cousins once removed, so we know that both Eleanor and Louis were simply done with each other by this time. After her divorce, Eleanor was again the most eligible bachelorette in Europe, having retained her lands in Aquitaine due to the provisions in her marriage contract. She faced repeated attempts to kidnap her. In response, she sent a letter to Henry, the future king of England, asking him to marry her, which he did, only two months after her divorce from Louis. Two years later, in 1154, Henry became king of England, and Eleanor was again crowned queen. Their marriage was tumultuous and argumentative, though this love-hate relationship was certainly productive when it came to heirs. Eleanor had eight children with Henry, five sons and three daughters, and would also come to care for Henry's illegitimate children that he had during numerous affairs. Their tumultuous love was also the product of politics. Aquitaine defied rule by Henry and continued to answer only to its duchess. By 1167, Eleanor had left Henry's court and established her own court in Poitiers. Their separation was amicable, as Henry continued to provide protection for Eleanor during her travels, even acting as her personal escort. For five years, Eleanor ran her own court, though we know very little about it. It was rumored by Henry's court chroniclers to be the court of love, full of troubadours, chivalry, and courtly love. Despite this idyllic vision, Eleanor's life was far from over and far from peaceful. In 1173, her son, called Young Henry, defied his father and rebelled. He was forced to flee to Paris, where he conspired against his father with the French king, his brothers, and, ultimately, Eleanor. She was torn between a husband she no longer appeared to love and her children. A year later, Eleanor was arrested by her husband. She was held prisoner in various locations over the next 16 years. During this time, young Henry died, and Eleanor is said to have told the Pope that she was haunted by his memory. After his death, Eleanor did gain some freedoms, accompanying her husband on his travels and helping with the government of the realm. Finally, in 1189, Eleanor's husband, the king, died, and she was freed by her son, King Richard I. She rode to Westminster, where she received oaths of fealty on behalf of her son. She ruled in Richard's name, allowing him to go off on the Third Crusade while she managed the kingdom. She even personally negotiated Richard's ransom when he was captured. Eleanor survived into her eighties, witnessing the entirety of Richard's reign and the beginning of her youngest son, King John's reign. She continued to be a major force in England and France, personally selecting the bride for Prince Louis of France from her among her own descendants. In 1201, she retired by taking the veil as a nun. 
She died three years later, having outlived all but two of her children and becoming a queen of both England and France. Just over a hundred years later, another incredible queen graced the English stage. Born in 1314, Philippa of Hainault is a rather obscure queen. Little is known of her early life until she was selected as the bride of King Edward II. An account by Edward's ambassador, who arranged the marriage, is said to have described Philippa, though some historians think it might describe her elder sister, Margaret. The account states that Philippa had dark brown or blue-black hair, a high and broad forehead, and a narrow, slender face with deep brown eyes. She is also said to be brown of skin all over, much like her father, and in all things she is pleasant enough, as it seems to us. In 1326, four years after this account, Philippa was betrothed to Edward. She journeyed to England to begin her new life, marrying Edward in January of 1328. She would not be crowned queen, however, until March of 1330, when she was six months pregnant with her first son, and Edward had become king. She was only sixteen. Queen Philippa was described by court chroniclers as a very good and charming person, who exceeded most ladies for sweetness of nature and virtuous disposition, and as the most gentle queen, most liberal, and most courteous that ever was. She accompanied her husband on his travels around Europe, winning further acclaim. She was known as exceedingly compassionate, especially when she persuaded her husband to spare the lives of the burghers of Calais in 1347. She often acted as regent in her husband's absence, and bore him fourteen children. Queen's College at Oxford was founded by her chaplain, and named in her honor in 1342. Philippa was also known as a patron of the chronicle Jean Frossart, and owned several illuminated manuscripts. She died in 1369, outliving nine of her children. Though certainly not as well-traveled or active as some queens, Philippa was incredible in her own right, becoming one of the most compassionate and supportive queens in England's history. Next, we come to the golden jewel in England's history of queens. In 1533, a young girl was born, and her name was Elizabeth. She was the daughter of King Henry VIII and his second wife, the infamous Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth spent the first three years of her life as a princess, and the legitimate heir to the English crown. She resided at the royal palace of Hatfield, where she was cared for by many women, including her half-sister, the Lady Mary, Henry's first child by Catherine of Aragon. Yet, at only the age of three, Elizabeth was left motherless when Anne of Boleyn was charged with treason and beheaded. Elizabeth, now at the mercy of her father, was proclaimed a royal bastard like her half-sister. She became neglected by the king, as letters from her governess asked that the king provide clothes for Elizabeth, who had outgrown what she was once given. Despite her status as a bastard, Elizabeth did enjoy the privileges of being born royal. She was educated in Latin, Greek, Spanish, French, history, philosophy, and math. She formed a close bond with her half-brother, Edward, 
who was also left motherless when Queen Jane, Henry's third wife, died shortly after giving birth. Elizabeth was never very close to her elder sister, the Lady Mary, as they were of different faiths, and Mary was a full seventeen years older than Elizabeth. Yet Elizabeth's life remained tumultuous, as her father's subsequent marriages brought her in and out of favor at court. Henry's marriage to the young Catherine Howard, Elizabeth's first cousin, is said to have made a lasting impression on her. Catherine Howard doted on Elizabeth, often playing with her, but was later beheaded after being convicted of adultery. Upon Catherine's death, Elizabeth stated to Robert Dudley, a childhood friend and one of her closest confidants, that she would never marry. Life with Henry's final wife, Catherine Parr, brought some tranquility, as the new queen loved the king's children and sought to include all of them at court. King Henry VIII died in 1547, and Elizabeth is said to have wept over her father's death with her half-brother, Edward, at the royal palace in London. Elizabeth went to live with Catherine Parr, now the Queen Dowager, and her new husband, Thomas Seymour. Thomas took an unhealthy interest in Elizabeth, visiting her bedchamber early each morning. What exactly happened remains a mystery, and Elizabeth herself left the household as relations between her and Catherine became strained. Catherine died in childbirth only a little while later, at which point Thomas is said to have courted Elizabeth as his next bride, and in the hopes that she would one day be queen and make him king. Elizabeth rejected him, but she was subject to scandal over the relationship that almost ended her life and resulted in her banishment from court. Elizabeth's sister Mary became queen upon their brother's death in 1553. Initially, Elizabeth accompanied Mary to court, riding with her on the way to London. Yet irreconcilable differences led to problems and suspicions, further complicated by others' plots to usurp Mary's Catholic rule and ensure Elizabeth took the throne of Protestant England. In 1554, Elizabeth was imprisoned in the Tower of London on suspicion of treason, but a lack of evidence and Mary's reluctance to sign her death warrant saved Elizabeth's life. She remained a prisoner at Woodstock Manor until 1558, when, at the age of 25, Elizabeth became Queen of England. She was informed of her new status on the grounds of her childhood home at Hatfield, where she is said to have knelt down, whispering, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Elizabeth would rule England for 45 years a period considered to be the golden age of English history. She established a secure Church of England, reaching a compromise between Catholics and Protestants that avoided religious civil war and united the country. She also had astute political judgment, navigating the world of medieval politics with a group of trusted advisors. She became the patron of many voyages of discovery, including those of Sir Francis Drake, Walter Raleigh, and Humphrey Gilbert. These voyages prepared England to take its place on the international stage, setting up networks that would lead to England's dominance as a world power. Elizabeth herself established the East India Company in 1600. She was also a patron of the arts. Many country houses were built, miniature painting reached its peak, and the theaters thrived. Elizabeth even attended the plays of one of history's most famous playwrights, 
William Shakespeare, attending the very first performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream. She also toured her country extensively and was beloved by her people. This isn't to say her reign was without danger. Elizabeth faced threats of invasion from throughout Europe. One came from her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, who had fled to England after her second husband's murder. Mary, Queen of Scots, was the frequent focus of plots to overthrow Elizabeth. After remaining prisoner for nineteen years, Mary was beheaded when her role in the plots to overthrow Elizabeth was discovered in 1587. The next year, Elizabeth faced another adversary, the Spanish Armada. On the eve of battle, Elizabeth made a speech to her army, in which she stated, I have always so behaved myself, that under God I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and good will of my subjects. And, therefore, I am come amongst you, as you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved, in the mist and heat of the battle, to live or die amongst you all, to lay down for my God, and for my kingdoms, and for my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king." Aided by bad weather, her armies defeated the famed Spanish Armada's fleets of a hundred and thirty ships that sought to overthrow and conquer England. All this led to Elizabeth being nicknamed Gloriana and Good Queen Bess. Most famously, she is also known as the Virgin Queen. Though whether she was truly a virgin remains open to speculation. Elizabeth never married. She died in 1603, having become a living legend. Our final incredible queen is Victoria. Born in 1819, she was the daughter of Prince Edward, the fourth son of King George III. Raised by her German-born mother, Victoria described her childhood as rather melancholy, as she was raised under her mother's Kensington system, an elaborate set of rules and protocols. It prevented Victoria from having any freedom, dictating who she could meet and requiring her almost complete isolation. During the 1830s, Victoria traveled through England and was enthusiastically welcomed in each of her stops, as it had now become apparent that Victoria was to inherit the throne, the only heir of her grandfather's four sons. In 1836, Victoria was introduced to Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. He was one of many suitors posed to Victoria. Yet, according to her diary, she enjoyed Albert's company from the beginning, writing that he was extremely handsome and charming. Writing to the king, her uncle, Victoria stated that Albert possesses every quality that could be desired to render me perfectly happy. He is so sensible, so kind and so good, and so amiable, too. He has besides the most pleasing and delightful exterior and appearance you can possibly see. In May of 1837, Victoria turned 18. A month later, her beloved uncle, King William IV, died, and she became queen. She became the first sovereign to take up residence at Buckingham Palace. Victoria continued her courtship with Albert, showing interest in his education as a future king 
but resisting attempts to rush into marriage. Finally, in 1840, at the age of 21, Victoria married Albert in the Chapel Royal of St. James's Palace, in what she described as the happiest day of my life. Albert was Victoria's closest friend, confidant, and trusted political advisor. They would have nine children, most of whom married into other royal families in Europe. Together they oversaw Britain's great age of industrial expansion, economic progress, and empire building. Albert was actively interested in the arts, science, trade, and industry, and would become the patron of many royal projects, including the Great Exhibition of 1851 and several museums. Yet Victoria isn't remembered very much for what she accomplished during her initial years as Queen. Instead, she is remembered most for the years after Albert's death in 1861. She sank into a deep depression, wearing black for the rest of her life and holding her household in mourning for years. She rarely appeared in public, leading to thoughts of whether England still needed a monarch. Yet during this time, Victoria remained active in her official correspondence and continued to participate in affairs of state as much as a constitutional monarch could. By the early 1870s, she had resumed public duties and used her influence to support peace and reconciliation in foreign affairs, such as the Franco-German Wars. Her popularity grew, especially as Victoria became Empress of India in 1877. Though direct political power moved away from the monarchy during her reign, Victoria oversaw the successful transition of her role, becoming the modern idea of a constitutional monarch. She also remained active in politics, often giving her opinions, strongly supporting the empire, and favoring measures that improved the lot of the poor. She traveled frequently, embodying the public figurehead role that would come to define the monarchy. Victoria died in January of 1901, having reigned for almost 64 years. Her reign is now known as the Victorian era, a period of industrial, cultural, political, scientific, and military change that transformed Britain into the modern power it is today. Until this month, Victoria was the longest reigning monarch in British history, and the longest reigning female monarch in all of history. This month, on September 10th, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II became the longest reigning British head of state and the longest reigning female monarch in history. She continues the traditions of the incredible queens before her, having overseen many firsts and transitions during her time as queen. Only history will tell if these accomplishments place Her Royal Highness among the ranks of her England's greatest queens, but we are certain that she will be remembered for many years to come. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast on September 30th, when we round up the latest girl news. Also, please help to support the future production of Girl Speak by visiting our Podbean site at girlmuseum.podbean.com and clicking Support Girl Speak. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. If you like hearing a fresh, girl-positive perspective on the internet, please support us with a tax-deductible donation easily made on our website.
Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.